Detroit, Indy, 1967. And there's an accident on the front straightaway. Two, three, four cars. Where's Point? I don't know whether he can get through or not. Youngest man ever to win the coveted title of world champion racing driver. You see him here in his exotic Lotus, whipping through the streets of Monte Carlo during the Monaco Grand Prix. Richard Petty, humming down the back straight up the Daytona International Motor Speedway on the final lap of the 1973 Daytona 500. Four times he's won the race. Four times Richard Petty has won the NASCAR Grand National Stock Car Championship. First man ever to win a million dollars in stock car racing. Mark Donahue, here winning Indy 500, 1972. Called by many, the most versatile racing driver in the game today. Today, you'll see these four champion racing drivers, plus eight other champions, competing in the most unique automobile racing series ever. Twelve champions driving identical automobiles. This hot Porsche Carrera. Every effort made to ensure that each driver will have comparable racing machines made especially for the World Series of Automobile Racing. The International Race of Champions. Premiering today on ABC's Wide World of Sports. Welcome to Good Seats Still Available. A curious little podcast devoted to exploring what used to be in professional sports. Here's your host, Tim Hanlon. All righty, race fans, sports fans, how are you? My name is Tim Hanlon, and it's Good Seats Still Available, the curious little podcast that each and every week is devoted to, despite all the odds, what used to be in professional sports. Thank you for finding us once again. We are honored uh, to have you in our presence. Thank you for downloading us and streaming us or whatever you're doing, you're putting us in your earbuds and uh, digesting, ingesting this week's episode with our guest this week, Matt Stone, uh, who is the uh, former uh, managing editor and uh, chief cook and bottle washer at Motor Trend Magazine, longtime automotive uh, journalist and photographer. Uh, as we talk about, as uh, as hinted in pre-clip fashion, I rock the International Race of Champions. Yes, you must remember this. This is sort of the original sort of uh, uh, version of what uh, is uh, constantly uh, being reinvented and reconstituted and, and brought back uh, currently uh, in the form right now of Superstar Racing Experience, SRX. You maybe have been watching over the last couple of weeks and a few more weeks to come on CBS television on Saturday nights. Uh, Tony Stewart and Ray Everham uh, and, and friends have uh, put together um, another attempt from this concept that IROC pioneered back in the 1970s around what if you put some of the top drivers around the world from multiple racing disciplines into theoretically and hopefully conceivably the same type of car, the same car, the same uh, setup uh, with no differentiations. Everybody's got the same chassis, the same body, the same uh, uh, pluses and minuses with the, uh, with the, uh, the operation and put them into various racing situations and see just who is the best at their craft, the craft, 
uh, if you take performance and uh, car mechanics and uh, all that sort of gadgetry, wizardry out of it and uh, truly make it an even keel, an even uh, field uh, of machine and uh, get to the racing driver skill set and see who might win. I am frankly fascinated by it. Uh, I'm not a huge fan of the short track thing, uh, but I love the idea of having the same kind of car uh, and having multiple racers from different disciplines kind of go at it and see just who might uh, be indeed better than others. And uh, I, I'm, I'm, I've actually gotten hooked on the whole thing. It's only a two-hour presentation on Saturday nights, uh, and it's done live. I think it's a great throwback uh, to sort of the short track uh, uh, culture, uh, which uh, is is very well ingrained in the United States sports history and certainly in automotive history. But it does harken back. And they uh, it's interesting to every week, there is not at least one mention of the old International Race of Champions uh, format. And I think Tony Stewart has a lot to do with that since he raced in it, too. But we're going to kind of dig really deep into uh, the true early uh, year and, and pre-year of the first ever IROC series, what is now known as IROC 1, uh, that was run over the course of four races in uh, three days uh, in the latter part of 1973 and the early part of 1974. And Matt Stone is uh, just uh, uh, issued uh, uh, just an absolutely gorgeous new book uh, that I highly encourage everybody to get. Uh, even if you're not a racing fan, you're going to find the uh, the visual imagery and the um the memorabilia that's photographed in this, as well as the store, of course. The book is called The IROC Porsches, The International Race of Champions, Porsches 911 RSR, and The Men Who Raced Them. And, and Matt has crafted a great story here, um, and it's got a couple of different layers. Number one is the actual idea of the IROC series, uh, which uh, at the time was uh, uh, quite uh, stunning in its uh, audacity as well as its uh, imagination. Now, we we kind of scratched the surface of the uh, original ideation of that with our pal Dave Lockton back in episode 173 last year. Uh, he, a longtime exec at uh, Indianapolis Motor Speedway, uh, and the, the founding and longtime running uh, uh, head of the Ontario Speedway. Uh, and Dave was, uh, you know, I think with a bunch of other folks kind of ideating this IROC concept uh, in sort of very early forms. Uh, but as we get into our conversation with Matt uh, Stone this week, uh, we're going to get into the granulars of uh, the people truly who kind of took the idea and and sort of put it into uh, into real motion, uh, putting it into actuality. Um, uh, and uh, people like Roger Penske uh, are very much part of that, and and, and a few others, of course. Um, and we get into kind of uh, not only just the the ideation of uh, of the series itself, um, but also we get into the cars, right? So there's a whole reason why, at least in the first series, that first season, uh, that the Porsche 911 was uh, decided on as being uh, the automobile to uh, to race. And uh, as most race fans. Uh, will uh, sort of appreciate, and this is a completely new concept to me, um, these uh, drivers from various uh, uh, disciplines uh, were all put in these uh, gorgeous-looking, I guess, M&M colors is sort of maybe the best way to describe them. Uh, all kinds of just gorgeous colors um, that, uh, you know, were um, 
not only raced during these four races, uh, and again, the brainchild by Les Richter, Roger Penske, and Mike Phelps, pretty much the uh, the triumvirate of, uh, I guess, this uh, of this series, putting it all together. Uh, it was decided that, that this car uh, would be probably the best way to judge one's true racing performance, regardless of discipline. And it's a collector's item. All of these cars, there were tr- 12 drivers, but 16 cars created all uh, together uh, specifically for this series. And uh, all of them, uh, the gorgeous colors of and the hues of yellows and greens and blues and reds and blacks. And it's just absolutely stunning. They are absolutely collector's items and all of them still exist. And uh, per Matt's uh, conversation uh, we get into and a little off uh, off the air as well, uh, they're going for a good two million bucks a clip, uh, including um, Jerry Seinfeld owned one. I think he owned uh, the yellow one. And I now, of course, Matt's going to be yelling into his device as to which uh, car that was who drove that one. Uh, but um, uh, Seinfeld, uh, as an auto enthusiast, I believe sold that yellow car for about $2.4 million, uh, a couple of years back. It just shows you how revered uh, these uh, original IROC Porsches uh, from the 1973-74 uh, original season. The only season, the first and only season that Porsche 911s were used. Um, as we, you know, the history of IROC as it sort of uh, uh, played out over the uh, years and a couple of decades afterwards, it became kind of more of a, a stock car-ish kind of uh, uh, bent to it over time. But make no mistake, this first season of IROC, the International Race of Champions, uh, was essentially a battle of the uh, of the stars uh, racing um, the Porsche Carrera RSR, uh, 9-11. And um, let's, uh, as we uh, sort of uh, get into this conversation, um, the the race drivers were from uh, a various points of, of racing. Mark Donahue and uh, Peter Revson uh, and George uh, Fulmer, who is the, uh, uh, writes the uh, the intro to, uh, to this book by Matt Stone, uh, all uh, with various levels of success in uh, the Can-Am series. Uh, Peter Revson, also a part of the Formula One series at the time, along with Emerson Fittipaldi uh, and Dennis Holm. Uh, so that uh, discipline, Formula One, was represented in this. You had uh, what was then known as the USAC Champ Car, what is later referred to as the IndyCar racing circuit. Uh, folks like Bobby Unser uh, and A.J. Foyt, uh, Gordon Johncock and Roger McCluskey were represented uh, from there. And then the rest of the field was filled in by what was then known as the NASCAR Winston Cup Series, the stock car series, what we now know is the, um, as NASCAR's sort of top tier. Uh, David Pearson, part of that, Bobby Allison, and of course, the king, Richard Petty. All of those gentlemen, all those 12 guys uh, were the uh, initial crowd and crew uh, that were uh, the the racing field for this IROC series. Now, Mark Donahue, I don't mean to sort of spoil it for you, but you know, this happened how many years ago? Uh, Can-Am uh, 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 expert, uh, ran away with it, although George Fulmer won uh, one of the four races. Um, but it was fascinating uh, on a whole different bunch of uh, levels, uh, uh, how uh, racers sort of adjusted, uh, which racers tended to do better or worse. Now, you also have to remember, too, that all four of these races in this first season were run on road courses, right? So the road specialists, if you will, or those with ample road racing experience pretty much had the sort of uh, inside track, if you will. 
Uh, and uh, But I digress. There's a whole sort of series of events and stories and situations in the buildup, uh, the launch, and then the actual racing uh, of this fascinating series that kept a lot of uh, driving uh, fans' attention over the years, even as it changed in various fits and starts. This IROC series, the International Race of Champions, we're going to get into the first year of it and the cars behind it uh, in our conversation this week with Matt Stone. And oh, by the way, the very last champion of the IROC series in 2006, it was then known as the Crown Royal IROC series, was a guy named Tony Stewart. Yes, the very same Tony Stewart that's part of the Superstar Racing Experience, SRX, that is uh, on your television sets on Saturday nights this summer on CBS. Uh, and what is that format? Well, it's it's short tracks, but it's the same idea. Cars similarly created, uh, similarly situated and uh, attuned, uh, racing from various uh, different disciplines represented and seeing just who is the best over a course of six races across short tracks all across America. Uh, and uh, gee, I wonder where Tony got the idea. And it just speaks to uh, the spirit of this IROC series that many, many people uh, both car collectors, uh, current race fans, uh, and others. Just uh, It has lore. It has a place in racing history. And the ideas uh, are as uh, timely as today's events. And uh, we're happy to have Matt Stone in our conversation this week as we get into IROC, the first year of it, uh, coming up in just a few moments' time. First, a quick uh, promotional message. Let's spin the uh, the dial, shall we? And it lands this week on... Our friends at SportsHistoryCollectibles.com. Hello, Dean. Dean Mitchell, that is, in San Diego. How you doing? I love the new look and feel of the site. I love the uh, it's the tons of new inventory that's coming in there. And there's just great, great stuff across all kinds of sports uh, in the realm of memorabilia at SportsHistoryCollectibles.com. It's memorabilia of all the leagues that thrived, failed, and shaped, just like this week with IROC, the North American Sports landscape of today. You're into football, baseball, soccer, hoops, hockey, and various miscellany. We get into racing. There's tons of great racing programs from all kinds of events from years past. Uh, Olympic stuff, that's coming up. They've got all kinds of stuff there. Tennis, postcards, stadiums, you name it, all kinds of great stuff. Uh, there is just an ample supply. And there's more, like I said, stuff just about every week coming in and uh, at, at sportshistorycollectibles.com. And of course, we have a promo code you got to write it down. You got to save it. You got to use it when you go to the site early and often. It's good seats. Promo code good seats. I think it's one word, if I'm not mistaken, Dean. Yeah, good seats. And you're going to get 15% off all of your purchases when you go to sportshistorycollectibles.com. Just add that code good seats at checkout. And please enjoy, courtesy of us and Dean, 15% off. And we, of course, uh, appreciate. Uh, Dean's longtime sponsorship of this little show. We also appreciate Dean posting some of his favorite episodes of this show on the website there, too. So uh, it's kind of a round trip, so to speak. So go buy some stuff and then just click over on his site and go back to our archives and listen to some of the other uh, great episodes that we've uh, dialed up for you over the last four years. And keep going back and just you know keep going around and around and around. You'll never have to leave. And uh, you're welcome in advance. <laughs> All right. So uh, let's get into it. Even if you're not a race fan, you're going to enjoy this conversation. You will certainly enjoy the book. The visuals alone are fantastic. And as that clip at the beginning of the show sort of hinted at, the ABC Wide World of Sports presentation with Keith Jackson calling all the action in pre-recorded form. That's how it was delivered. 
Here's the fascinating tale of the beginnings of the IROC series, the very first year, that 1973-74 season. Here's our conversation with Matt Stone. We had just a couple of weeks back. Thank you for listening. Please enjoy. I am a born and raised in Southern California car pool. Uh, my, my dad was a car guy from way back in the hot rod days, and I, I inherited the, the mutant gene of, uh, of car guy from him because we, we always had, you know, interesting cars around the house, and we went to car shows, and we went to races, and we, we went out every year when all the new cars came out and picked up all the brochures and looked at all the new cars, and so I was kind of a car guy from birth, I guess you might say. And um, my other big hobby was photography. So what did I shoot? Cars, naturally. And uh, actually, career-wise, started off in the real estate business and then kind of started dabbling in freelance photography and freelance writing. And one night, about 30 years ago, the two just kind of met and crossed in the middle of the night. And I gave up my day job use your term, and decided to hang my shingle as a freelance writer and photographer, and I've been doing that for 30 years, and um, along with just general automotive enthusiasm, I, I love motorsports. I, I love racing, the guys, the drivers, the cars, the speed, the stories, the whole deal. So um, that's that's a little bit about me, gasoline in my veins, and, um, and I just, anything to do with cars, be it technology, motorsport, history, design, pop culture, um, interview, in almost any angle that you could mention with involving transportation is, uh, is my involvement, my interesting, my interest, and uh, I'm your neighborhood car guy. Okay, so I, I think the next question that I need to ask then is what kind of car guy and or maybe more pointedly, what kind of, uh, of racing uh, do you sort of find yourself most uh, aligned to or uh, most affiliated towards because, you know, and I, you know, I, I, this is a very amateurish kind of question, right? Cause I'm not sort of a, a long time, deeply rooted racing fan, although I, I do admit to uh, being intrigued with the, uh, with, with NASCAR of late and, and the, the uh, SRX series, which we'll talk about in a minute. Um, but, you know, I think it's important to kind of maybe set that base because, there, there seems to be like typecasts right here, right? The, you, you're either the, you're an indie guy or you, you're, you're a Formula One buff or, you know, really into the off-road thing or you're kind of a, you know, a, 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 a NASCAR stock car kind of guy. Um, can one be multiple? Uh, it seems to me the answer to that is generally no, but school me as to what you are and 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 if that's even a a, a right well, frame it's, it's of, a, of reference it's a more than fair question one that i have been asked and answered many times and completely fair because everybody is different you know it's like well do you like music yes well there's got to be more to it than that but uh, i would say i'm generally an automotive omnivore i pretty much eat all meats and uh, i mean i like I like sports cars and and classics and hot rods and all sorts of genre of uh, of cars, old, new, and otherwise. So I'm pretty much an omnivore there. And in motorsport, I would say generally the same. Uh, if I had to pick types of of uh, of racing that appeal to me most, 
it would be road racing, you know, road course racing with turns left and right, and 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 sports cars and endurance racing in Le Mans and Sebring and Daytona and all that kind of stuff. So I'm a I'm a sports car racer guy, although I certainly pay attention to uh, to Indy and Formula One and um, uh, I've been to a lot of drag races in my day and uh, and and I find something to enjoy in most of it. But I, I am generally a road racer type, but uh, but I'm but that's not exclusionary. I don't put down all the other sports that other people tend to like, but uh, that's that's kind of my bent. Yeah, well, that's interesting because road racing, obviously very different and, and, and irrespective, right, of the actual chassis or, or, or type of car, right, that's, that's doing the racing, right? Uh, you know, uh, uh, the, you know, uh, various road courses like Road America and stuff or, or the, the one down in Austin, which name escapes me of late, um, that, uh, you know, will we'll handle Indy cars or NASCAR or, uh, uh, you know, any other sort of kinds of things, right? So the, the, that nature, that kind of racing, right, seems to me, again, sort of the, the amateur sort of uh, occasional interested uh, party uh, seems to be, I don't know, I want to call it more grueling because it's a different kind of grueling, but requires a little bit more, I don't know, um, I think a, a broader palette of skills perhaps versus uh, speed and agility when, say, one's going around in circles or, Try ovals and that kind of stuff because yeah, not, you are turning not. left and right and gear shifting and going down and up hills and all that kind of stuff. It seems like it's more complicated. To me. I, I think it's more faceted. That's for sure. Um, and I, I'm, I'm not going to minimize or marginalize uh, IndyCar racers or oval racers or any of that because that's a whole different set of skills that uh, that also takes huge talent and uh, and a lot of fortitude, but. Uh, but I guess that's what's appealed to me about road racing. And Formula One, which you mentioned, is road racing. And actually, the NASCAR boys, a couple of times a year, they go road racing on road courses with them big old stockers. So, um, but yes, you're right. I mean, to me, there, there's so much going on in a road race. you got to be looking forward and backward and sideways, and you're accelerating, and then you're decelerating, and you're braking, and you're, you're shifting, and you're doing all that kind of stuff. And... Um, to me, it's just the most rewarding type of driving to do. And I believe because, not to get overly philosophical, but it involves all four of your extremities. You're clutching and shifting and braking, and you got the wheel in one hand and generally a shifter in the other. And uh, it, it, to me, it just involves your whole gyroscope. But uh, that's what appeals to me. I just, I just love road racing, but... Uh, Again, not at the exclusion or expense of what other people may enjoy. Well, it's an important distinction, uh, especially as we kind of sort of uh, uh, turn uh, here and uh, turn three into this conversation around this thing known as the International Race of Champions. Um, you may know that we uh, had uh, Dave Lockton uh, on our show about, I don't know, about six months ago, he being uh, kind of the chief cook and bottle washer for Riverside, uh, the long uh, uh, since uh, forgotten Riverside International Raceway, where uh, the first uh, set of IROC races occurred, uh, which happened to be uh, a pretty well-regarded, at least at the time for a short uh, period of uh, life, uh, a, uh, a, a, a road course of uh, extraordinary um, twists, turns, and, and skills needed to kind of 
uh, to conquer it. So m- maybe a little sort of background as to your interest in IROC. I have I, I got a feeling it had something to do maybe with the road race element of it. Um, Absolutely. Yeah. And uh, I lived at the time in, uh, in Upland, which is about 25 miles to the west of where Riverside was. So that was sort of my home racetrack. And I went to a lot of races there. I mean, a professional sports car races, um, IMSA and that series, which you may have heard of, and a lot of road races at uh, Riverside. It was, it was a magical place in the kind of the middle of nowhere in Riverside County in what is now called Moreno Valley. But anyway, uh, Riverside was a large, fast, and yet very technical racetrack. Um, all kinds of, of sports cars and other cars raced there. They used to run NASCAR there. Dan Gurney won the NASCAR race at Riverside five times. Figure that. And um, and then when when IROC came about, and there is, and I, I don't wish to cause any sort of major debate with Mr. Lockton, but uh, once once IROC got off the ground in its final form, I am not sure that David B. Lockton was involved in the final form of IROC. But no matter. No, um, I, I think he would agree with that. And by the way, it was the Ontario Motor Speedway that he was. Uh, yes, the, I was going to say. My mistake. OMS. I, OMS, I, I, yeah. I, I do mix up the, the Southern California uh, 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 courses of your. No, I, that, I think. That's you, a shame because they're both gone. That's, no, well, yes, sadly, for sure. Yeah, um, but but no, I, Dave did indeed sort of a, a demure uh, quite a bit on that, right? I, th- I think he sort of fashions himself as being somewhat of a. a an initial ideator uh, in partnership with other people thinking similarly. And I think perhaps because of his position at the time of, of, of OMS, Ontario Motor Speedway, uh, him uh, having a desire to at least perhaps throw Ontario into the ring as a place perhaps where this idea could come into fruition. I think he had, he had, he had moved on since then. And I think others as we'll talk about kind of truly kind of put uh, uh pedal to the metal, so to speak, to put the, uh, uh, the arms and legs around this to make it actually occur. Yes, and that triumvir- triumvirate was Roger Penske, who needs little introduction in, in, in anything to do with cars or racing. Um, another guy named Michael Phelps, who was primarily a, a marketing and advertising guy. He put the de- deal together with ABC's Wide World of Sports, which we all know and remember and love. And then... Um, the third guy. Oh, let me let me bring his name to the forefront in my head at the moment. Les Richter. Les Richter was the manager of Riverside International Raceway, uh, a former Los Angeles Rams fullback, I believe, uh, who who grew, grew up in sports, and then when he retired from the Rams, he stayed in sports management. And so it was those three guys that put IROC together. And uh, Mr. Penske was primarily in charge of putting the cars and the car deal together, logical enough. Uh, Les Richter was in charge of the facilities and, and the drivers. And then uh, Mike Phelps handled the TV deal and the marketing. So uh, you are somewhat correct that I wouldn't say it was a made-for-TV series, but it sort of almost kind of was. TV was was an absolute element of IROC from the beginning. 
and it was designed just just for that reason and that's why the cars were all painted very much uh, jelly bean or M&M colors so they would look great on television and why the driver's name was on the windshield and on the door so that way when you were looking at that green Porsche going by you'd know if it was David Pearson, George Fulmer or Mark Donahue or your favorite driver or not and and uh, the visibility on television was a huge important elemental aspect of Iraq. Yeah, and I think it's important to remember uh, too that you know in the in the early 1970s, right? We were talking about a media landscape, especially in television. Well, it was far different than what it is today, right? I mean, you're really talking about three major networks and maybe in each market a handful of independent TV stations, and and you know being on ABC, right? One of the only three networks, really. Uh, was a gigantic deal, right? So in in many respects, it was a third, if you will, of the television sports realm. Uh, ABC at the time, right, being the the broadcaster of the Indianapolis 500, right? Probably a lot of uh, uh, leverage, so to speak, in terms of being a wide world of sports, frankly, being, um, you know, this is prior to, CBS sort of breaking out years later with the uh, uh, that memorable Daytona 500 when there was a big snowstorm on the East Coast on Valentine's Day. Mm-hmm. Um, it, you know, the, the only time that most, quote unquote, average Americans outside of, say, the, the Deep South were seeing full on NASCAR stock car races were in the tape delayed uh, edited versions in wide world of sports, right? So it, it seemed to me that that C, excuse me, CBS, that ABC at that time, especially was really kind of, I think of the three major networks was really the, I would call the arbiter of, of uh, motorsports in, in this country when it comes to television, but that, certainly that, it's probably the most- Absolutely true. Yeah. Uh, the, the most familiar and, and, and the, uh, the most prevalent. They also, whenever you watched a tape delayed broadcast of the Monaco Grand Prix, who nobody saw Formula One other other than on Wide World of Sports. And 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 what few IndyCar races they broadcast were on ABC. And yeah, Wide World of Sports was uh, the, the the something of triumph and the agony of defeat. So they not only had, were the prevalent players, they had the experience, the broadcasters, and the, the, the cameras and equipment to cover a race. I mean, they knew better than anybody at the time how to do that. Uh, some of it was still shot on film, if you can believe that, although most of it was taped. There were no in-car cameras, no rotating in-car cameras, or you, you never heard, if there were radios, you never heard the driver and the, the team talking. I mean, but still, they were pretty advanced or at least competent given the technology of the day and of course you know a a camera that's as big as your house and microphones that had cords uh they they were as good as anybody did for broadcasting motorsport back in 1973 and 74 that's for sure well no and you look at some of those clips on youtube i mean it was it was an event i mean keith jackson was sort of you know jackie stewart they were you know they they were putting all their their you know their uh, their efforts behind us certainly in the the very first years Uh, i think it became more of a a wide world of sports kind of fill-in thing as the years wore on but they were they were all in at the very beginning well sure at the very beginning of course uh part of the reason for that is that uh, the first year of the series was uh, that's why i did this book on primarily the first season 
was the most international roster of drivers that the series ever had. I mean, in that year alone, you had multiple Formula One champions, multiple Indy 500 winners, several IndyCar champions. And I mean, those were the biggest of guns at that time. So uh, they really put a lot into it. And Goodyear was a, uh, a sponsor of the series and provided the tires and also provided the blimp. So that allowed, you know, the, uh, the, the cameras to go up in the air and float over Riverside and Daytona, getting those massive giant pictures that they did at the time in color, which was pretty cool stuff. I mean, there was not a lot of motorsport that had that kind of coverage back then. So they did a good job. Well, and also too, I guess, road racing specifically, right? I mean, I, um, you know, I, I would imagine that most of the, road course racing that national television audiences had seen up until that point was probably of the edited and, um, you know, a consolidated kind of a presentation, no? Yes, yes, fair statement. Uh, they did not, of course, cover Formula One live. Nobody covered any of that stuff live. <coughs> Pardon me. But, um, but when you saw the, the rebroadcast of the Monaco Grand Prix, for example, it was edited and shortened and you got the highlights and you saw the winner and the champagne and the kiss and the flowers and all that. But um, you never saw flag to flag racing covered in mo uh, road racing covered in on television it just didn't happen. So the fact that it's another reason that these races were, you know, 75 mile races, 30 laps or whatever they were, is that they were easily packageable on television. And, and you got, you could see the whole race and, half an hour, 40 minute show. And, and, and that is a key element of what IROC was ideally packaged for television. All right, well, let's set up this first uh, IROC. We're talking about uh, uh, 1973, late 1973 and, and early 1974. It was basically four races spread across those, that period of time. Actually, I think three of them were at Riverside from between on a weekend of uh, October 27th to 28th of 73. And then there was the road course at Daytona on February 14th of 74. But it's it's interesting to me because, and and obviously the the focus of this this lushly uh, created and, and gorgeous looking book that you have out there, and we'll be promoting the hell out of it during during the, the beginning and the end of the show. And 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 when well, we get- Well, thank you very much. Well, yeah, there you go. Well, it's, God forbid, we'll help you sell a few extra books. But um, this looks to me in hindsight, right, as primarily, and maybe uh, on purpose or maybe not on purpose, I don't know, you tell me, a road course specific event, which is not what it ultimately evolved to in the years later, but I, I, the road course specialty was uh, prime in the skill set here, as we sort of established earlier for this, and obviously the choice of car for such uh, accordingly. Yes, that's absolutely true. And funny enough, at the end of the season, a couple of the drivers who were primarily oval racer indie guys said, you know what, this was fun, and I've learned a lot, or I didn't, or I loved it, or I hated it, but um, we really should do two races on an oval and two races on a road course. Very compelling thought. And, and that's what they went to a little later, and then for a year or two, they only did ovals. And then they brought back Daytona Road Course. And, you know, that was about the time the series was beginning to wane a little bit. But, uh, but you're right. Um, 
it was an interesting formula. And, and some of the IndyCar guys who were not, and the NASCAR guys who were not necessarily as proficient or as deep in road racing, didn't like the format, format a lot. Although a couple of them, David Pearson and Bobby Allison among them, were, and were particularly good road racers. Those guys were, were good old boys, but they could turn both directions. And and uh, and often led or often figured in those in in the road races. So Pearson and Allison truly got it. Foyt AJ Foyt was an exceptional road racer, but but not familiar with the Porsches. And then uh, some some of the I wouldn't say older school guys like uh, Gordon Johncock and Roger McCluskey. They didn't like it at all. Well, so, yeah. So, okay. So then why, so the, the, the idea of this sort of, I guess you'd call it, I want to call it all-star race. I guess sort of, it was right. A cross-discipline sort of uh, test, if you will. But why was this, and I'm sure there are reasons, I'm sure Messrs. Richter, Penske and, and Phelps, uh, you know, had ideas as to why they wanted to do it this way, at least at the outset, but why was it so full on road course racing when, you know, to your point, uh, these these guys are coming from various disciplines. Um, I, I, I'm just curious as to why this road racing was dis- determined as being maybe the supposed arbiter of skill across all these different disciplines when a, guys were coming from all over the place. That's an absolutely fair question. I will say that some of it was ultimately dictated by the schedule. Remember, you had guys coming from all around the world. And, and, you know, they couldn't uh, say, oh, well, fly in this weekend for Riverside. And then, you know, two weeks from now, we'll go to Indy and then we'll do another race at Michigan and then we'll go to Daytona. They, they packed it all in the, the first three heat races into one weekend. And that necessitated that the, the circuit stay at one track in one tent. Uh, I think, uh, you know, we're at a different set of circumstances. They might have put an oval in there. They could have gone to Ontario. Um for one of the races, but but for whatever reason, did not do. But um, I would agree that that is a, a fascinating question that I can't answer with absolute certainty. I believe the reason was to keep the circus in one tent. They had the whole show at Riverside for one weekend. They did it there, and then and I I think the other reason might have been to to challenge all all the champions with the most theoretically most challenging type of, of motorsport. Do, do you think and, do you think Porsche was behind some of that too, being no, good at no. what they do, especially no. Okay. I, I was thinking no. maybe that as they maybe were stepping up and saying, hey, you know, we're we're especially good in this type of car. Maybe, maybe that had some influence. No, no, they 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 didn't have I mean certainly they had influence, but uh, that was not not part of the reason for choosing Porsche, nor did Porsche get to dictate where the venues were. That was not that type of relationship. So uh, in any case, interesting. And uh, maybe next time I speak with Roger Penske, I may ask him that point a little more pointedly. But as I understand, most of it, most of the reason for that is they wanted to keep the entire circuit in the same tent over one weekend. Now, Ontario was 40 minutes away. They certainly could have hauled the show over there and run the Oval, but for one reason, chose not to. But uh, but in any case, I think it also was to just to really test and challenge 
everybody's versatility, which it certainly did. But um, that's that's what I know of it. But uh, Porsche had nothing to do with that. And I think it was more just scheduling logistics than anything. How about the the, the cars then, right? Because one of the fundamental uh, elements of a race like this, as originally envisioned, right, is that in theory, everybody would be racing the same type of car with the same package set up, the same, you know, everything the same to the extent that they could be the same, right? No, no special alterations, no uh, special uh, crews with the, you know, in essence, trying to keep it as equitable and as um, straightforward and as equal as possible. Um, maybe a little bit of insight into the makeup of uh, this uh, Porsche Carrera uh, car, which was uh, the chosen chassis and body and 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 uh, engine and uh, vehicle for this first ever IROC race. That's absolutely that's absolutely true. Um, as a matter of fact, so much so, I'll tell you a little bit more about the car in detail. But so much so that Penske nor anybody else was allowed to maintain those cars. There were Porsche mechanics that came here to America from from Stuttgart, and they they cranked on the cars, and and uh, they didn't want Penske or anybody's pit guys or anybody's mechanic anywhere near the car. And I mean, in between races, they were locked in a warehouse with a guard. Nobody touched those cars but Porsche's own mechanics. So that way, there would not be any favoritism. As a matter of fact, George Fulmer, who uh, one of the drivers and who wrote the forward for my book, he said that when they were testing and practicing with the cars, if they found out that one car was perhaps not quite as crisp as another, or maybe a little faster than another, those would stay as practice cars. Uh, they did their best to, to shake down everything and put together a field of 12 as identical and evenly matched cars as they could. And they were, they were Jim Dandy cars to Porsche three liter RSR, which is racing sport ring or wrench sport. Um, the, 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 the big wide fenders and the whale tail wings and a, a three liter fuel injected naturally aspirated engine, five speed manual transaxle, very analog car. I mean, there was no computers back then. There was no paddle shifters. I mean, you had to drive these things and they were, they were very well balanced, certainly fast enough. And um, based on a, a stiffened and enhanced, but architecturally stock production Porsche 911 Carrera shell. Which means they were probably best of their breed, if you will, for tackling any kind of road course out there, right? I mean. Yes. Yes, that's a fair statement. They were good. They were, they were sports cars that were, you know, tweaked up to a, a higher level than a street 911. I mean, they had big wide wheels and big tires and big brakes off a 917 race car, flared fenders and oil coolers and a wing on the back and, and all that stuff. And I mean, they were, they were superb, uh, you know, road course kind of cars. They were fast enough to really get rolling down a straight, but uh, something over 300 horsepower, which doesn't sound like a lot today, but was a lot in a, in a fairly lightweight car back then, air-cooled, of course, and uh, they were terrific on a road course. And um, I, I believe an ideal weapon for that job, 
and they were well chosen and well specced for for the job. And uh, the guys who were really superb road racers could crank a lot out of them, and and did. But uh, but yeah, the the main goal, and you hit it on the head, is is that Porsche built them as equally as as um, human hands could build them. And then they ensured that only those German hands touched them. And every race, each driver got a new car, got a different car. So uh, that was another equalizing factor there. Also fascinating, I'm, I'm getting off track a little, but, but they went with an inverted start for each subsequent race. So whoever finished last in the first race started from pole on the second race. So they inverted the whole start to put the, the fast guys at the back and make them work to the front. And then the guys who maybe weren't as fast started at the front and it was up to them to try to stay there. But uh, every race, they switched cars. And I think that was also critical because you know if, if a car was a little faster, a little slower, or suited one driver better than another, or this guy liked the green car and that guy liked the black car. That deck got reshuffled with every deal. And that, that was important. And I, I know it was a big part of the scheme, and I think that's the right word, of the plan to level the playing field in every way possible. Yeah, uh, and the uh, the level of detail uh, in your book, I Rock Porsches, uh, Porsches uh, um, it, it's fascinating to me. This is the whole part of it that I, you know, didn't know it before. I mean, you go to the level of detail of literally uh, describing uh, each of the um, each of the cars' history and that who who was driving which car, right? So so the the, the black car was you know had a couple of different drivers and stuff, and um, and you've even tracked the history of of these automobiles uh, in the years since as they traded hands and whatnot. Um, but it, it to me that that seems to be one of uh, the ultimate ways, I guess, to try to keep things equitable is to uh, indeed shuffle the deck, so to speak, right? It's almost like truly like shuffling a deck in a, in a game of cards, right? After yeah. every hand, you want to sort of uh, give everybody a, a fair shot, a fair change again to uh, to try again. Now, was that inversion process, was, was that the first time, I guess, maybe that uh, was sort of uh, introduced? Uh, to the auto racing world that you know of? Because obviously that's a, a staple now of, say, NASCAR uh, all-star races and the like, that inversion. I do not know that if it was the first, specifically the first time. I believe it had been done somewhere similarly. But however, it certainly was an effective tool to to take care of a naysayer. Any naysayers should say, oh, you know, he's got the better car. Well, if he had a better, if he happened to have a better car for race two, he didn't have it for race three. Um, and if a car, they had three spare cars, that if a car got damaged in a race, they just wheeled up another one. So uh, the, the the equalizers were were multi level, and uh, and I think it was very effective and and very smart on behalf of the organizers. So any of the naysayers would say, oh, well, you know, Mark Donahue, he drove for Penske. So he got the best car. Well, no, he didn't. He might have lucked into a good car once or twice or three times. But 
he didn't he wasn't assigned the best car. The, for the first race, they drew a straw. Okay, you 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 drew a straw and you got car number nine, it was the green one. And then the next race, there was a rotational scheme that you got another car. If a car got wrecked, they wheeled up another one. So uh, they worked diligently, I would say, uh, and fairly to to level the field to the extent possible. How much prep did these guys have? And 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 in your investigation and in, in putting this book together, did, were you able to maybe historically or forensically determine whether uh, some of these cars were actually better than others, or was that still is that just speculation? To answer your first question, they had. Uh, like a, a test and practice day. I think it was the day before the first race or in the days before the first race. And and all the drivers were there. And I want to say they went, went out and did 25 or 30 laps and they were timed. And then they might have traded cars and they went out and did more laps. So they had, you know, they didn't have days and weeks of practice, but they did have time in the cars before race number one, green flag. So they didn't go in completely cold, but um, again, it was not like, you know, where they're a member of a race team where they may have said, oh, we're going to go out testing for a week. That didn't happen. And they had a, a day. And I want to say it was about 50 laps that that they did in, in, in at least two cars. And uh, could we determine that, uh, that that one car was better or worse than another? Not substantially. Uh, there, there was one car that just seemed to be fast. Now, granted, a couple of guys drove it fast. A couple of fast guys drove it, so it might have been that. But uh, there was what, one. Do you remember what color that which which it that was, one was? In my opinion, the black one. Okay. The black one chassis zero one two four, I believe, was just ever so slightly sharper. Faster is probably not the right word because it won two races, two of the four races. And I mean, that's pretty good in that field amongst those guys about that many cars. If, if one car rose to the top twice, it was definitely no slug. But um, it and, was and, that not, car, and, and that was two different drivers, right? One was Mark Donahue, which won, who won three of the four races. And I'm guessing right. George Fulmer, who was the other the, the other guy who went, run the race. Was that the case with the two? That, that's correct. Interesting. Yeah, okay. Correct. So the, the black car was did finish first, although that said, right, now we can get into speculation. Fulmer and Donahue were, were uh, you know, were uh, both Can-Am guys, right? So they arguably yeah. had a... Yeah, a better sort of read on, on what a road course situation would be like. Yeah, th- those those two guys were big game National League all-star road racers. No doubt about it. I mean, they they were they were seriously capable road racers and had a lot of experience in Porsche. So uh, there's no doubt. I mean, that car did well in good hands. But um, but but generally speaking, the cars were as reasonably equal as um, as hands could make them, and the fact that they got the deck got deck got reshuffled every race tend to flatten out some of the bumps, and uh, I was as fair as I believe it could be humanly made. How are the drivers chosen, to your to your knowledge? Uh, I'm sure between Messrs. Donahue and and Fulmer, and I guess Peter Repson. 
between his Formula One stuff, also was a K&M guy too. But the rest came from Winston Cup, what was then called the Winston Cup, which is today's uh, uh, yeah, top-level NASCAR. Uh, there's the Champ Car. Formula One uh, was a, a place uh, uh, from which they chose. Do you have any sense of of how these folks were chosen? Was there a qualification process, or was it sort of just done maybe with the uh, mindset of, of, of high wattage names that people might recognize? A little bit of both. Uh, there were, I wouldn't say there was a qualification process per se, but, uh, but yeah, high wattage names were important. Like, okay, we want you know, a couple of, of Formula One guys. So let's pick a couple of Formula One champions like Dennis Holm and Emerson Fittipaldi. We want a couple of Indy winners. So they got a couple of them. Bobby Unser, AJ Foyt, and um, Gordon Johncock was in there. Gordon John Gordon Johncock, yeah. McCluskey, Roger so, McCluskey. Roger McCluskey. So they got those guys. And then they said, Well, now let's get some well, George and Mark both raced uh, Trans Am. So they had another layer of road course complication there. And and yeah, it was kind of like that. Who are the who are the dozen most high wattage names is a, is a good way to put it that, that will really, that everybody will know, everybody on TV could root for and at the races. Although I will tell you, it is interesting. There were two rather huge names that were not there. Can you guess? Well, one's got to be Mario Andretti. Bingo. Next. You got me on the other one. Okay. Alonso. Sure. And the reason is simple and unfortunate, but simple. Um, both of those guys were, this is back when they did such things, had tire exclusivity contracts with Firestone. And Goodyear was a, I mean, uh, IROC was a Goodyear series. So they both had exclusivity contracts that paid them a lot of money, I'm sure. And they were going to go break those contracts to go run IROC. Uh, Mario was there at one of the tests and I guess it was looking around and checking. They wanted him bad. And, um, but Mario and Al Sr. could not do it. Although both of them subsequently later, when, uh, the, fi the Firestone exclusivity clauses and contracts went away, both Mario and Big Al joined the series and won the championship. So. They yeah, were the they, right guys. They both, but, came in, they both came in two years later. Uh, I know Mario yeah, finished second two years later, but then, yeah. So that's, but but it's probably also a bit of a testament to how, uh, uh, I guess, uh, serious and important and uh, cool this IROC idea was becoming. Well, yeah. When you when you've got the guys they had, they had they had about as good as there was anywhere in the world at the time. And a couple of others, people may ask questions about what about Dan Gurney and what about Jackie Stewart? Sure. One of the rules is that you needed to be a still working professional racing driver at the time of the IROC qualification race, at the time of the races. And, and both Gurney and Stewart had each just retired. Stewart was in the early discussions, but he, he retired and, and therefore was out. And would have been spectacular, in my opinion. I mean, would have been a competitor for sure. But uh, ended up being the, the broadcast color commentator on ABC, and that was fine because he added a lot of value to that. 
and the drivers knew and respected him and his interviews with the drivers were good. And, um, but, but I can only imagine had the thing happened a year earlier, if, uh, if Dan Gurney and Jackie Stewart would have been there, would have been a ton of fun. I'd have watched that 40 more times. Well, so how, how did the, how did this initial IROC then play out? Are you at four races, three of which are at Riverside. They're all road courses. They're all in the Porsche Carrera uh, RSR race car. Clearly, the the road racing guys, maybe predictably, I maybe it wasn't predictably at the time, did really well. I mean, George Fulmer won one of the four races. He finished fifth for the series. And uh, Mark Donahue was, you know, three out of the four. He won and ran away with it. He was uh, probably, I, I'm, you know, just looking at these names, maybe one of the lesser known guys of all of these 12 that were racing when it came to general knowledge of, of, of race car drivers, ironically. I'm not completely sure of that. Uh, that's a matter of opinion, but you will recall that he was the 1968 and 1969 FCCA champion and the 1972 Indy 500 winner. So he was, he was no, no shrinking violet by any stretch. And in a lot of circles, uh, was well known. He raced at Le Mans. He raced at Daytona. I mean, and raced stock cars. He was a, a very big gun. But uh, but nonetheless, uh, yeah, that's kind of what happened. The, the road racers uh, ended up rising to the top. As I mentioned, uh, the two of the better road racing NASCAR guys, they being Donnie Allison, Bobby Allison, and uh, and David Silver Fox Pearson drove very well and, and on occasion led those races. Uh, Fittipaldi led here and there, although uh, finished a little bit of mid-pack and I think he crashed and DNF'd out of one race. Emerson Fittipaldi probably didn't do as well as many people might have predicted him to do, being a Formula One champion. So uh, really, Mark Donahue was, was dominant. And Revson also had some very good runs. Uh, didn't didn't win a race. Didn't finish as high as some people might have thought he would. But uh, but generally the road racers won and finished the best. A uh, couple of the top NASCAR guys did very well, and then the rest of them up and down the pack. Sometimes they'd finish 11th, and the next race they finished third. Bobby Unser drove very well. Uh, multiple second place finishes, I believe. Or thirds. He uh, Bobby Unser was a, one of those guys that was, would be fast on a lawnmower or a tractor, and um, and and hated the cars. He did not like these cars at all. I don't think he had anything against Porsches, but he didn't like the way they handled. They were a little tail heavy, oversteered some, and not every driver likes that. But anyway, Bobby Unser drove very well. I would say the, the, the two fishes most out of water were Roger McCluskey and Gordon Johncock. Gordon Johncock, by his own admission, he says, I just didn't jump into a whole new kind of car and go fast. He said, it takes me time to learn the lay of the land, learn the car, and get up to speed. He wasn't making the excuse. He said, but that's my deal. I don't jump into something new and go fast. Uh, McCluskey just did not have a lot of experience in road racing nor Porsches. Uh, Dennis Holm, a Can-Am and a Formula One champ, 
a terrific world-class road racer, was a mid-packer pretty much the whole way. He, he started and finished all three of the heat races in the middle, started in the middle, finished in the middle. Never was a factor. And, and home was a charger. I mean, you, you race McLaren Can-Am, you're good. And Formula Ones and Brabham's, I think, and McLaren's. And you know, Dennis Holm was a, a racer's racer and a half and was, was no better than mid-pack. A.J. Foyt, by his own admission, said prior to the third heat race, he says, I'm just starting to come to grips with these little Porsches. And he was starting to get comfortable with them. And I think had there been more races and more heats, Foyt might have done better. He did qualify for the, the finale, the prom at Daytona. And um, unfortunately, you know, didn't do terribly well or terribly bad there. But, but Foyt, I believe, was on the verge of breaking through with the cars. And, and Pearson ran very well. Like I say, you go up and down the lineup and another, another, Surprise or not surprise, and I can I can I can quote the late great Bobby Unser in this regard, was Richard Petty. Richard Petty just didn't do particularly well. And in in the words of Bobby Unser, he said, Well, you know, Richard Petty is a a world class outstanding racing driver, but it just wasn't his kind of deal. <laughs> That's a quote. So, uh, yeah, Penny was, was, was very mid-pack, too. Almost smiling the whole way and seemed to be having fun. But um, nonetheless, yeah, you go up and down the, the roster of finishers, and, and there's kind of reasons and understanding for where, where they finished and where they started and, and who had trouble and who didn't. But in my mind, that series, that first season of the series, was just a unicorn in motorsports. Just, just the, the best of the guys that 1973 had to offer in 74, short of, you know, Mario and Al, who couldn't do the technical reasons, but a dozen truly world-class drivers banging it out to kind of see who was best for bragging rights, money, and fun. And, you know, what's better than that? Yeah, to Petty's credit, he... Um... He, he, he plowed on for, I think, through uh, the, uh, the uh, five races of IROC, right? So it wasn't like he wasn't having fun or at least trying to trying to do it. Well, let me let me ask you this then. So what do you, of that first season then, so, I mean, how, how would you, how did it go, right? Uh, obviously, the competition was was good. It was all brand new and, and certainly drew a lot of excitement. I, I, I'm ignorant on, on how the ratings were. Um, I'm also, though, interested as to, uh, what the sort of after this after season assessment was because um, the Porsche cars didn't come back uh, and the, the series did uh, sort of uh, retool a little bit uh, going away from sole uh, road racing and uh, completely in different directions when it came to uh, uh, car chassis, uh, not only in the second year, but going forward. Yeah, that's a very fair question. On the whole, it was judged a success uh, and continued for 26 seasons over 30 years with a, a similar but evolved formula. Uh, the, the reason the Porsches went away is they were, you know, naturally you'd expect somewhat expensive to build and to run. Uh, they were replaced by Camaros and then ultimately by a couple of different Dodges and by Firebirds. 
and and there were uh, there were Chevys, Pontiacs, and Dodges that came along in subsequent seasons. They were just cheaper to build and run, and were were more comfortable for the NASCAR guys, and were probably more ideally suited suited to ovals. Because after the first year, they started, as I think it was McCluskey or John Cox that suggested, they started they'd run you know two road race courses and and two ovals in a season. And that tend to even out the, the playing field a little further in terms of venue. And same thing, the cars changed every race and they had inverted starts. I mean, all the basic structure stayed the same, except for the cars changed and a couple of the venues changed. So um, by all the TV ratings, I understand were good and very good. And because anybody watch anybody that wanted to watch racing they did it on wide world of sports and and uh any racing that was on that people watched it and it was guys that they knew and could root for in cars that they recognized and then it was two generations of camaros that came later and two generations of dodges and then they went to uh to, to firebirds and then after they stopped making the Pontiac Firebird, they just called it the IROC Racer, even though it was still a Firebird. It's kind of funny. They stripped all the Pontiac badges off of them, and they were just IROC cars at that point, even though they looked just like Firebirds that they used to make. And somebody, somebody missed the marketing memo with that. Yeah, yeah, I would say so. Well, were, but, but it's also interesting, though, uh, Matt, that that that. Um, and again, every, hindsight is twenty twenty, right? But of course, the, the move to I mean, essentially, they became stock. It was a stock car chassis kind of setup. Yep. From year two onward, right? And no. as as the years went on, right? You know, the uh, the knock against IROC was that was, if you will, you know, it might have been even on all these other sort of uh, uh, metrics and 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 uh, and setups. But at the end of the day, the ultimate arbiter was that the fact that the car was, if you will, a stock car sort of body. And guess what? That's probably. And and it showed in the results generally, that to the advantage of of you know the NASCAR guys. Oh, that's absolutely true. And as a matter of fact, both George Fulmer and and Mike Phelps said that after a while it kind of became a junior NASCAR series, for better or for worse. I, I will uh, submit one small correction to your comment. the The first generation of the Camaros that they ran, beginning in 1974 five. They were based on production cars. They were they were not tube framers. That came along a few years later, but uh, but ultimately you are correct. They went to uh, to what they call silhouette racers, which means a body that looks like a Camaro, on a tube frame, and and they were junior NASCAR racers from about year five on, and uh, they they still they were very effective because those cars were good on ovals, and on um, on the road courses, and they were built to be good in both. And the the NASCAR guys were much more comfortable in them. And um, of course, Chevrolet put a bunch of marketing money behind it and sold IROC D Camaros on the street. And it was a very effective tool. But um, but you're right. After a while, it it they went to an all oval formula, and you were getting less and less international drivers coming to participate and that to me is kind of where it all i don't want to say went south but the original vision 
was obscured by that. It wasn't very international anymore. There were some guys from other countries and other series, but mostly after a while, it got to be um, IndyCar guys and good old boys. And that's what it kind of uh, was at the end, for better or worse. And um, it was something very different. And I don't think it was as good, honestly. And I'm not picking on the NASCAR guys or the American chassis and engines, but um, it just became less international and uh, was much less was much less true to the original spirit of the event. And I asked Roger Penske, and I imagine this is your next question. Uh, I asked Roger Penske, well, why did it end? It was such a great formula. Why did it end? And it's very logical. He said, we got into issues of exclusivity and sponsorship and contract. He says, it's pretty hard to have a Ford contracted driver out there racing a Pontiac and saying, boy, my Pontiac ran great today. So the, the, the conflicts between uh, drivers, engines, chassis, and, and brands is ultimately what made the series more cumbersome than it was worth. So, so that's kind of where it ended up. They ended up shutting it down. It was 26 seasons over 30 years, and uh, it had a good run. I mean, you think about it; it's a good run for a uh, for a series that you know doesn't date date back to the 1910s, 20s, 30s, 40s, 50s, whatever. Um, it was sort of a manufactured series out of an idea, and and had a 30 year run. That's in in any measure. And you know, because you know television and movies and series and all that, a 30-year run on anything is terrific. Yeah, well, it's also uh, interesting, too, because I, I think, you know, I guess my really last question is, is sort of the legacy, because uh, the idea really sort of hasn't gone away. I think a lot of people are sort of throwing back to how cool the concept was. I mean, I think ultimately, right, you know, the the, the best way in a perfect world, right, would be to have all these drivers from these different disciplines uh, be in all of the different cars involved from their disciplines as well. Right? And that's hard, right? A stock car guy is not going to jump into a, a Formula One vehicle and be able to, I mean, it's just, it's just, it's just kind of just borderline impossible, right? But if you truly wanted to be equal, right, everybody would get a shot in the cars in the series, you know, from the series that these, that they were from. So I, in some respects, it almost feels to me like it may be an impossible task. Although going back to the nostalgia and calling back, right? everything old is new again, which is a constant theme of this little show, right? Uh, uh, you know, nothing is new under the sun. And this superstar racing experience that uh, Tony Stewart and and um, uh, Ray uh, Irving, Everingham and, 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 um, uh, and others have sort of put together uh, is an interesting twist. And they have not been shy about, especially Stewart, uh, calling back IROC and saying, you know, we're trying to go back to that spirit where it's from uh, racers, not just guys, by the way, which is an improvement, and not just That's white true. guys, and not just That's white true. guys either, which is also an improvement, uh, to, you know, go back to the spirit of, from multiple disciplines, uh, and maybe with a twist, right, going to the short track sort of uh, uh, roots, if you will, of racing in the United States, at least. Oh, yeah, uh, definitely. In, in theoretically yeah. similar cars, right? But in this case, Everingham, Everingham, I never can spell it, say his name right, Everingham. There's um, no G. There's no G. Everingham. 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 That, that's probably why it's hard for me to say, but I, I digress. 
um, th- th- there's no make or model on this. This uh, I-, I look at those cars though, uh, in the first couple of weeks of that on CBS, and I-, I don't know, they look like bricks to me. But maybe that's part of the the the, the uh, concession one has to make in order to make something that is truly new for everybody versus sort of being deferential to one type of racing. That's true. And that's on purpose because they didn't want to get into that. Okay. Well, Chevy, uh, the cars do run Ford engines, but they're not badged as Fords. And uh, there's probably a a sticker on them somewhere that says powered by Ford or something like that. But, but yeah, the body design is somewhat innocuous on purpose. That that's an SRX car. It's 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 just a little more generic, and so you don't get into those sorts of brand allegiance issues. And uh, equal playing field, all built and prepared by the same people, so you don't have this guy's pit crew and that guy's pit crew and his chief mechanic and or her whatever. You know, there's none of that. So and and you're right. They unabashedly acknowledge and credit Iraq for the formula uh, that now they're doing all these many years later. And uh, the fact that it's, you know, kind of on, uh, on, on dirt short courses is, is fascinating on short courses. Um, they're trying to make an equal playing field for everybody. Now, ultimately there may be road courses and you know, we don't know how long the series will run or where it'll go or how it will evolve. But there's little questions. There is validity in the basic formula. Now, the execution, of course, has many facets. But um, but the formula, people still want to know, who's the best? Take all these different disciplines, put them in the same darn car, and run them. And, and I think there's great appeal in that. And, and I credit uh, Ray and, and Tony for for understanding that and for their their willingness to, I don't want to say pay homage, but to acknowledge and recognize the original IROC series for the genesis of their new series. And I hope it's successful. I watched the first race, it's a lot of fun. So we'll see. Yeah, I, I, I tend to agree with you there. And I, you know, maybe the short tracks is just the easiest way to sort of get the concept out there. But it's, it's interesting as we record this, right? The first two weeks, uh, the winners have been uh, short track experts, right? The first one uh, in uh, in the, the the venue in Connecticut was uh, sort of the local ringer, which is a really cool idea, by the way, as well. Bringing in the local ringer from the local track uh, to participate with the big brand names and stuff. But I think you're right. I mean, uh, the concept, the general question, right, is always out there is like who truly is, given equal circumstances, the better driver, Um and, you know, if I do think, though, right, you know, I, I think it's we'll see. Right. We'll see if um, uh, if, uh, uh, you know, some of uh, some of the uh, indie drivers or the Formula One drivers can, you know, win one of these races and stuff. But it's tough. Right. You're slinging around in the slinger speedway at the world's fastest quarter mile uh, and you throw some dirt on there. I, I don't know if a, uh, a Tony Kanaan's going to win that race. Right. So I, but, you know, uh, I, I do think you're right. Right. If you can mix it up with at least a couple of different course types. Um, and I love the idea of having the short track in there because I think it's it's nostalgic. It, it, it's 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 the the true sort of essence of of the sport. 
um, but maybe not exclusively. And, and I, I got to think that they're thinking bigger than just that. But I think it's a great way to start. And um, again, you got to kind of throw, uh, you got to tip the hat to the original IROC concept. I, I guess my last sort of wind up question for you would be, do you ever think we'll see an IROC sort of, uh, uh, you know, at that sort of top tier level, you know, maybe in the big facilities and that kind of stuff. And, and maybe an SRX does grow into that. Or was that, would you say that this is sort of a moment in time and, and maybe it's just kind of, you know, uh, a folly to think that that'll ever sort of come back again? I believe it's a moment in time. It's a unicorn. I really do. Uh, I, I suspect, as I think I said somewhere in the introduction of my book or maybe in the wrap up, if you were to put together today's equivalence of those dozen drivers, if you had the top two NASCAR guys, the top two IndyCar guys, Lewis Hamilton and, um, and uh, you know, another Formula One pilot, to put together those 12 toppest, 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 pointy edge of the stick guys and gals, it cost a billion dollars. I mean, you know, really, uh, I think it was a little bit of a moment in time because uh, I think Mr. Penske is correct that at some point you're going to get into schedule and sponsorship and contract issues that might be too big to overcome. I don't know. Uh, SRX is very carefully formulated not to tread on NASCAR turf. Because, you know, you don't want to poke that bear. Because that bear can put you out of business overnight. So um, it has to be, any any such future for this formula has to be done in such a way that you could get the very toppest and best guys and gals and do it in a way that it does not tread on the other top formulae. And, and I think with sponsorship schedule, contract, and all of that, I, I think that would be a mountain a little too high to climb. That's my opinion. I'd love yeah. to be wrong, but, but I, just, I just think Mr. Penske put it succinctly that, that all of the, 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 the strings that bind uh, were, got to be a little too binding. Yeah, and, and, you know, well, Lord knows there's plenty of tracks out there, right? Especially those that, you know, have lost – uh, recently in the, the NASCAR schedule shuffle, I, for example, Chicagoland Speedway, right? Not, not chosen this year after 10, 15 years of, uh, of NASCAR uh, top tier goodness, right? So I, you know, the, the adoption of road courses and stuff, I, you know, there's plenty of unexplored uh, or quality venues out there. Um, oh goodness, yes. A lot yeah. of great tracks that are underutilized. Yeah. So I, you know, I, there is, there could be room. I, I look, we, we explore the team concept, right. You know, like the teams in different cities, right. Uh, if you look at some of the, the newer leagues out there, like um, the premier lacrosse league or, or some of these others, so it's sort of a touring kind of format. Uh, they sort of create these sort of artificial teams uh, and names and stuff, but you could, you could domicile or have a, have a, 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 a city branded uh, a group of, of, of racers that, you know, kind of literally go, I don't know, there seems to be there's, there's some creativity there. And, you know, all that said, right. Uh, and the IROC concept that we spent the last hour talking about how at least cool conceptually it was. And, and for a couple, you know, for a number of years, some really uh, amazing moments and, and, 
and worthwhile memories. I, I just, it feels to me like there's plenty of room for some, shall we say, creativity and innovation uh, around this kind of stuff. And um, I don't know, I, that gives me some kind of hope. And look, you, you're talking to a guy who's not even a gearhead. He's not even a, I'm not even a, a, a historically uh, engaged uh, racing fan. But to me, this is kind of, it's cool to kind of sort of see a new idea or a retro version of a new idea uh, come to fruition because to me it's, it's, it's interesting, it's different and it's not sort of same old, same old. And um, I'm for all of that. So I, you know, a, a fair disclosure, I've, I've watched both SRX races thus far and I actually drove by Slinger Speedway on my way back from dropping up my, uh, my older daughter to camp up in Northern Wisconsin. It is having driven by, uh, on the interstate, the the uh, the exit to Slinger Speedway, just to just knowing that they were going to be coming uh, in a couple of weeks, and you know I've never seen a facility like that before. I mean, it's it's classic, it's it's old, it's it's tiny, and it's 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 gritty, and I, I never would have in a million years imagined to do that without the you know the the uh, the excitement, I guess, of this new concept, which to me as a as a regular Joe you know sports fan I, got me interested. Yeah, the validity of the concept is genuine. There's no doubt about that. I mean, as I was saying, some of the the realities of execution pose challenges, but I don't believe that the validity or interest in the concept is 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 not prevalent. I agree. I would love to see. To me, however, they would have to get the very top drivers to participate, because then. It's an interesting series, but it's not international race of champions. That's what I want to see. Are all of the vehicles that per, that were part of that first uh, IROC series still around and in other people's uh, collector hands? Or yes, yes, yeah, they uh, they all had uh, somewhat different lives post IROC. Uh, some of them uh, became frontline sports car racers in the IMSA series. Um, and they raced the Daytona and Sebring and all throughout the International Motorsport Association, International Motorsport Association, IMSA, series for many years. And some of them um, uh, were pretty successful, some of them not as much. A couple of them went into hiding in, in private, very private collections. Some of them do some vintage racing. Uh, one of them, I believe, was damaged pretty badly and glued back together, but they all exist in one form or another. Uh, Roger Penske owns one in his in his uh, museum collection, and um, and Jerry Seinfeld owned one for some number of years. It is also interesting that one of the cars, the the, the Sahara Beige car that Emerson Fittipaldi drove in the first race, was subsequently owned by Pablo Escobar who you will know is one of the great drug lords of, of Mexico drug lord history. Now, figure that, you know, and this guy, he drove it on the street in Mexico. There's a bit of, of IROC trivia for you. Well, talk about a rabbit hole or, or a series of rabbit holes, right? I mean, just to be able to, how long did it take you to track down all these cars? Or is it relatively easy? Or, or I, I can't imagine it was. In, in some cases, it was. For probably a half a dozen of them, I was able to find owners and histories pretty quickly. Uh, there, you know, within the Porsche circles and vintage racing circles, there are guys and dealers and owners and race teams that they travel in these circles. 
you give them a chassis number and they know where it is. And I will also admit that there were three or four of them that was a, like an archaeological dig to find the car and get a hold of somebody that could say, oh, yeah, I have it. And here's what I'm doing with it. Or here's a picture of it. Um, so some of that was challenging, but uh, it, was, it was a lot of work. It was, I will be honest with you, Tim, it was months of work to, to build reasonably detailed and accurate post-Iraq history and current locations of these 15 cars. It was a lot of fun. I mean, it's like, you know, digging for diamonds, but it was a lot of fun. And when you find a diamond, boy, you get excited. But, uh, yeah, they all live very different lives, and some of them had successful race cars. Some of them just got put away and kept and went to shows. And one of them was driven on the streets of Mexico by Pablo Escobar. Go figure. Well, as multifaceted uh, and uh... – uh, it's just an amazing little story. I, I guess the last sort of question I'll throw out there is, is how much are these going for, would you say? The last like, couple, last, that's a fair question. The last two that have sold are were over, over $2 million cars. So the $2 million 911 is a reality. Wow. That's I, 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 pretty amazing. But, but a testament, yet again, right, that there's that that sort of history and that sort of uh, recollection, I guess, I'd, not only for Porsche collectors, right, but uh, the fact that they were in, in initiating a, a, a completely new concept in uh, in competitive racing. And hey, look, I, that's I, I, that's it, to me, that's why we have these conversations because it's it happened in the past. It it was influential. It still has uh, layers of of influence even today. Yeah, and, layers, um, of, layers of relevance, for sure. Yeah. And, of course, you know, in my business, I'm all about the story. I mean, you know, of course, the cars and the people make the story. But to me, the story has to be good. And this was a good one. Now, just to, a, a little reference on a couple of those that I just mentioned. The, the, the record, I believe, so far is about $2.4 million for one of these cars. It was the yellow car, which I know Revson drove and John Cock drove and wrecked. And then uh, the yellow car was a significant player in the series, and that was the one owned by Seinfeld. And then he put it up for public auction some years ago. I believe it was 2.4 million bucks. And the um, the Pablo Escobar car is currently on the market at 2.2. I am not aware offhand of any other recent sales prices, but these are valuable storied historic cars driven at the time by the best drivers in the world and have lived interesting lives, which are pedigreed and well-documented. And, you know, they're great stories. Yeah. The, the, the cars as stories and not only just the race itself. All right. This is the last question. This is all fascinating to me. It's just, it's a Pandora's box of questions. Is there any interest in trying to document, probably not as exciting as, as the first year of the, the stories of the cars of that first year, but the rest of the series, or is it not as interesting as the first one? I think it's extremely relevant. Um, and I think cumulatively, it's, it's as interesting. Yeah, I, I don't, I don't really know if there's any, and I'm not a, you tell me, I, I don't know if there's any real authoritative history of it. No, no, no. And, and, and I've thought about that and, and actually had publisher discussions about it. So it is, it is entirely possible. All right, if we have a vote... <laughs> it's your life and your work, right? But uh, I, it, it, to me, it's it. And again, I, I'm not even a racing enthusiast per se. But 
I think even to the, to the racing enthusiast, right? Um, I don't know. It feels like a big gap in, in the history of motorsports. If the book buying public and race fan and my publisher likes the idea, I will do it. Because you just look at the drivers. I mean, Mark Martin. Everybody knows Mark Martin. Five-time IROC champion. Five times. Mario was a champion. Uh, Foyt was a champion. Bobby Unser won the championship twice. Uh, Dale Earnhardt Sr. was a multiple IROC champion. Uh, I mean, you know, the, you look at the list, of, and it's, it's all in my book. I have a chapter in there called Post-IROC or Post-Porsche IROC. And, I, and I, I go through season by season kind of who won and which cars they drove. And, and there were some, some pretty epic races and epic names all over the place. And, uh, and I believe in those subsequent 25 seasons, there's enough of a story for another book and I'd like to be the guy to do it. All right, great, interesting, fascinating stuff. And uh, you uh, IROC fans hopefully will uh, be uh, continue to tune in to the uh, Superstar Racing Experience on CBS uh, as we see if uh, Tony Stewart can outlast his uh, other 11 challengers in the IROC-inspired SRX short track series. Uh, it's fun. It's fun to watch for sure. And um, I think the competition's starting to heat up. I think it's more of a competition really of uh, some local uh, track ringers, so to speak, some uh, uh, some current drivers and, and a whole bunch of uh, former drivers uh, going at it. And it's uh, it's fun to watch. And again, I don't consider myself a race fan, uh, but it's intriguing. And I love the fact that it's uh, hearkening back to uh, the IROC series as its inspiration. And it's uh, no surprise, frankly, uh, given Tony Stewart's uh, winning of the final IROC championship back in the day. So let's tell you where you can get this awesome, uh, gorgeous-looking book uh, by Matt. It is uh, called The IROC Porsches, the International Race of Champions Porsches 911 RSR and the Men Who Raced Them. Uh, it is published by Motorbooks. And uh, you can, of course, get it wherever good books are found. If you'd like to uh, give us a few shekels of referral love by Buying it off our website from Amazon, we'd appreciate that. That's at goodseatsstillavailable.com. Just search up this episode number 222 with Matt Stone and just, just click through there and you'll uh, be able to uh, get it delivered, uh, I don't know, next day, maybe the same day. I don't know how, how quickly it's being delivered now. And we appreciate that, of course. Uh, Matt also, though, uh, will send you an autographed copy uh, if you uh, go through uh, a bookseller that uh, is well-regarded and is kind of the locus for all things motorsports writing and publication. Uh, it's in Burbank, California. It's called uh, autobooks-aerobooks.com. Autobooks, A-U-T-O-B-O-O-K-S, hyphen aerobooks, A-E-R-O books.com. Autobooks-aerobooks.com. And uh, that is the place where you can get uh, an autographed copy uh, from Matt. Um, and uh, it's uh, it's on 2900 West Magnolia Boulevard in Burbank. I, I think you could probably even just go there uh, in person in Southern California and ask for the book. And I'm sure Matt will either drive by 
uh, to Sweet and uh, and get an autographed copy to you, uh, or he will probably uh, do it after the fact and uh, somehow get it to you. But uh, that's a, another sort of higher brow way of doing so. And, you know, by the way, God forbid you actually support your local bookseller, and it's a great example uh, of doing just that. They are newly reopened uh, in the sort of semi-post-pandemic realm, so check them out at... Um, at autobooks-aerobooks.com and or in person in Burbank for that special touch of a, uh, an actual signed copy. Uh, Matt can also be further followed on his website. Uh, great stuff, great blogging and stuff, uh, great stories. Uh, again, a lot of motor trend uh, uh, stories of the past. This guy has been around the block when it comes to auto racing uh, coverage over the last 30 plus years. Uh, he can be found at mattstonecars.com, mattstonecars. Com. Okay, again, our website, one more time, is goodseatstillavailable.com. Uh, that's the place, of course, for all of our old episodes, all of our future episodes. Uh, you will find a link to our weekly email newsletter. Uh, you will also find links to uh, our social media feeds and our email address. But I'll give those to you in short order. Uh, maybe save you a step if you want. On social media, you will find us on Facebook at Good Seats Still Available. On Instagram, you will find us at Good Seats Still Available. On Twitter, you will find us at Good Seats Still. And on email, you can send us one or a bunch at hello at goodseatsstillavailable.com. Uh, you can say or wave virtually hello to our pal Jerry Payne. He of Jerry Payne Audio Excellence. He the chief cook and bottle washer when it comes to putting all of our collective pieces together each and every week in an editorial form in a fine manner. Thank you, kind sir, for helping us get through this week once again. And uh, we also want to thank you, the listener, the fan, the enthusiast who keeps uh, keeps us going with your cards and letters, your proverbial cards and letters. Uh, we are ridiculously overdue in responding to all of them, uh, but it keeps us going for sure. We it's it just it it's wonderful to know just how many people uh, respond to various episodes and memories uh, that they have. We appreciate the shout outs on social media. We appreciate you telling your friends. We appreciate your supporting the show with other links that you click and stuff that you're buying from our authors and all that kind of stuff. We just appreciate the whole hell of it. And uh, we thank you kindly. We'll see you next week. More fun and frivolity to come. Until then, please stay safe. And uh, we'll see you then. Bye. Bye.